If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. So I was asking the question, what brings me joy during the Christmas season? And I have to tell you, this passage is probably my favorite Christmas passage of all time. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot that goes with that. But once we find that, let's go so Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's stand together as I read this for us. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. I, I love this passage. I love this passage, and it, it brings me great joy. And I think this idea of the Magi, I just want to reflect this morning on these kind of mysterious visitors, the Magi. And I, but I love the idea. I love, for me, there's something about the idea of, of a journey, a journey not knowing what to expect. I love the mystery. I love the risk. I love the intrigue. I love kind of the esoteric nature of the Magi. Like they're just these men of mystery who show up with knowledge that no one else has. And there's this sense of suspense. There's a sense of, of, um, of, of intrigue and risk. And there's something about this passage that when exotic strangers show up and know something that no one else does, it's like a suspense-filled thriller. I know none of you have been binge-watching any streaming services or any Netflix, but there's always this intrigue. We like the shows that have intrigue, and this show, this show, this is a show. This passage has that kind of intrigue. It also reminds me that God works out of bounds. Like, we've already talked about this idea. We talked about Joseph the first week that God works in disruption, this first week of Advent, that God comes and disrupts, and he has to say, hey, I'm going to work in this disruption. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary. That we have disruption, but we also have the command, don't be afraid. 
And then last week we looked at this idea of, of kind of the, the scandalous grandmothers of Jesus. And we noted that God seems to work in scandal and that if God is going to work in this world, that it's going to come out of scandal. He's going to be out of touch with the way our world works in many ways. And so we have these scandals, but there's great providence in these scandals. And so the way God works in this world, that he works in disruption, he works in scandal, but there's also the sense of no fear, there's also this sense of providence. And in this passage, we look at this idea that God works out of bounds and in unlikely places and offering insight insight about himself from unorthodox people. I mean, this is where, for me, and we'll get into this, but for me, I have to check myself when I run across the, the kooks, the weirdos, you know, whoever, whoever it is, that sometimes it is those folks who have a sense of journeying after God and finding God in the most unlikely of places. So let's take a look at this passage, see what it has for us. Who are these magi? Let's look in verse 1, Matthew 2, 1, and it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. By the way, technically this is not a Christmas passage. I don't know if you guys know this, but even the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, the twelve days of Christmas are the twelve days after Christmas, and the 12 days after Christmas end on what? It's, it's what we call, it's, it's what's known as, um, well, it's the visit of the Magi, essentially, is the 12 days after Christmas is when the visit of the Magi takes place. And so that's, this is an after Christmas event. And that's what happens on, uh, uh, what is it? It's July, it's January 7th, not July, January 7th is um, is the day, why am I blanking on what this day is called? But I know, there we go, okay, it'll come to me at the end and then it'll be fine. All right, two, one. So who were the Magi? Now in the ancient world, we've already actually had a couple of passages about Magi, and even next week we're gonna hear a passage probably about a magician, but Magi, those who are designated as Magi in the ancient world, and our passage simply says wise men, and one of the things that that magi were not known as, were wise men. Wise guys, maybe, but wise men, no. They were not considered wise. And actually, I, did, I preached on this the first Christmas that I was with you all, but I want to bring up a few other things about this. But magi, the activities that are referred to for those who are magi in the ancient world are things like fortune-telling, sorcery, astronomy or astrology, which were not that far apart in the ancient world. They were priests of foreign religions, explainers of dreams, and magicians of varying degrees of plausibility. Our English words magic and magician come from this ancient word magi, or amagus is what it is as a singular. Among those named as magus or magi in the Bible we looked at one back in Acts chapter 8. It was Simon the magician, Simon Magus. He's the guy who tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's a magos. That's a magi. Okay. Like that's, we're not, we're bad 0 for 1, right? Elamis the magician in Acts 13, which I think next week Jim Hill's going to come and he's going to preach an awesome message and he might even mention Elamis the magician. He's known as a magi. 
He's a false prophet. He's called son of the devil and struck blind. Over two on Magi. In the Old Testament, Balaam in Numbers 24 is called a Magi. And his, his allegiances are questionable at best. Uh, he's paid to prophesy against Israel and only thinks better of it after receiving guidance from his donkey who talks to him. So that's 0 for 3 on Magi. So Magi don't have the most stellar records. They're not exactly wise men, and they're not kings either. Now, Magi in the ancient world, in ancient literature, there are Magi that are associated with Persia or Babylon or Arabia and Egypt. Uh, But not every reference to Magi is necessarily negative. In Daniel, particularly in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, that Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams when the other Magi cannot. And Daniel eventually would have been considered a Magi, and it says in the Septuagint that he becomes chief over the Magi in Babylon. Now, it might be that these Magi are coming from Babylon because they're familiar with Daniel's prophecies about the coming Messiah. These might be Babylonian Magi who follow, who have a Jewish bent to them, even if they are coming from a more Zoroastrian that's, I just had to put that word into the sermon. Zoroastrianism is this ancient... Anyway, we'll talk later. Um, but Daniel, so that might be what we're talking about. One thing that Magi were not, were not kings. So the song, we three kings of Orient are... Okay, two things that are not true. We don't know if there are three. How many Magi are there? Plural, two. You know, more than one, maybe it's probably a caravan. The traditions are that there are three. There are three gifts, but we don't know exactly how many there are. So, but they were not kings, and they wouldn't have been considered wise necessarily in Jewish tradition. They They weren't rabbis. They weren't kings. They weren't priests not of Judaism, and so they would not have been considered insiders. They would not have been considered orthodox. They're keepers. Maybe the best way to think about magi, Philo in the ancient world in the first century, he differentiated from the scientific magi and the huckster magis. And so maybe you you could get this idea that you have this blending of kind of science and sorcery, of astronomy and astrology all together, in these men, part scientist, part astrologer, practicer of the esoteric. They were foreign men of questionable character and religious affiliation. But that doesn't fit the song very well. We foreign men of questionable character and religious affiliation, more than one, perhaps three, maybe more, all right, thank you. I know you're laughing at home. I'll be here all week. All right, I, now I don't, I don't mean to disparage the Magi of Matthew 2, okay? As a matter of fact, I'm fascinated by these guys. And they are in the text, they're, sent, they're, they're heroes, they're noted as heroic. When, when the king of Israel cannot recognize the Messiah, it is these, it's these questionable foreigners who do recognize the Messiah. 
So they, they do seem to fit the bill of magi of the ancient world. They're interested in stars and astronomy and seeing the significance of human events in light of the stars. That's astrology. Astronomy is just looking at the stars and charting their paths. But I, the idea that there are human events that accompany astral phenomena, that's astrology, okay? And so this idea that they, they do this, and it, it's likely what qualifies them as magi. Not every magi is like a sorcerer, but these guys are astronomers or astrologers. One thing they do need help with is interpreting Scripture. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter 2. So this idea that the, the magi show up and they've seen the star, they've seen the astral phenomena, and they've interpreted the astral phenomenon, but they need guidance through the scriptures. They don't know how to read the scriptures and get guidance from the scriptures. So this idea of who these magi are, they're outsiders, they're unorthodox, and yet they show up with knowledge that the scribes do not necessarily have. They're unexpected visitors, unconventional and unorthodox. They are strange and maybe murky foreigners who happen upon divine information in the midst of their novel and unconventional pursuits. They're unexpected. They're unexpected. They're unorthodox. They are the people that you would not be expecting God to work through. You would expect God to work through a king or a priest or a prophet. And how we have magi. So, how do they get here? Look at verse 2. They come, they talk to Herod the king, and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star. Maybe you have a translation that says, We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, in astronomy in the ancient world, when you say you saw a star in the east, what it means is that you saw it when it rose. And that's because of the rotation of the earth. That whenever stars show up, whenever planets show up in the night sky, they always start in the east and they work their way across the sky in the west like the sun does because of the rotation of the earth. So when you say we saw his star in the east, it means we saw his star when it rose. Okay, so they saw his star, and then um, eventually we, we find, so our star, our star, quote unquote, has some very interesting elements to it. It appears while the Magi are in their country of origin, and that technical term, we saw it when it first appeared, and so they originally see the star in their homeland, when it se then it seems to disappear in the story. It sets them off on their journey. But then it'll eventually reappear once they get to Jerusalem. Do you notice that in the text? Like it sets them on their journey, but then when they see the star again, they're like, oh, we're so excited to see the star again. So it seems to disappear and then reappear. All right, now, there's theories. There's theories. There's always good theories about what the star is. One theory is that there is, uh, well, I guess one theory is that there's, it's a comet, and there is a comet that appears for 70 days in 5 BC. In 5 BC, um, 
according to ancient Chinese records, a comet appears for 70 days. And comets have somewhat erratic behaviors, and they have a tail, and maybe the tail is pointing out. This is the idea that maybe it's like, Jesus is here, Jesus is here. Maybe, okay? Some people argue that it could be a nova or a supernova. That's when a star suddenly grows bright and then explodes. And um, sometimes a supernova can be seen, and records indicate that there was a nova also in 5 BC. This is in Chinese records. That's one thing. It's not actually, we have actual great records about what the night sky looked like back in these days. We can actually work backwards, or we have records of these things. Another theory is that it is a conjunction of planets that that compose the famous star. And the word star, essentially in the ancient world, means an astral phenomenon, something that happens in the, in the night sky. And so, like the moon would be considered a star, even though it's not a star. Planets would be considered stars, even though they're not stars, they're planets. And one, when you look at planets in the sky, they don't twinkle because they're not giving off their own light, they're reflecting light, okay? No extra charge for that little bit of information. Um, we're going to have a lot of this. So one, one actual possibility is that um, in 3 BC, 3 BC, so by the way, Jesus was probably born, Herod, Herod dies in 4 BC, okay? The reason why zero, like the end of BC and AD, it's a miscalculation, that was only come up with in about the 13th century, and it was a miscalculation. And so actually, the year Jesus is born is probably a couple years before the death of Herod. If Herod is born, it dies in 4 BC, Jesus is probably born in 6 BC. I know. You're like, hey, I didn't know that. Now you do, okay? So here's the idea, that in, in, in 3 BC, Venus and Jupiter, the two brightest planets. So in the night sky, the moon is the brightest thing. The next brightest thing, do you know what the next brightest thing is? Venus is the next brightest thing. Do you know what the next brightest thing is? Jupiter. Jupiter and Venus are the next brightest things. And then Saturn, and then you go, I I think it's Mars, and then anyway, you start working your way down. But those are the brightest objects in the night sky. And in 3 BC, you had a conjunction where, where Jupiter and Venus got really close to each other, and also that eventually Mars comes into the picture, and that, some people think that that is what it was, and that it happened one year, and then a year later it happens again. That might fit what the Magi are dealing with. One of the most interesting ones, because um, it actually is about to happen tomorrow night. I, you guys didn't know this. Did you know this? That Jupiter and Saturn are going to be the closest together that they have been visibly in 800 years. It's going to happen tomorrow night. If you go out an hour after sunset, you look in the southwestern sky, Jupiter, it'll be very clear, Jupiter and Saturn will be less than a pinky's length apart if you hold it at arm's length. It's the closest they've been in 800 years. And it actually happens to be taking place on the day of the winter solstice. Like, it makes me want to become a magi, right? Like, all this stuff, like, what do we do? Again, I'm not going off into astrology, I I promise. But it is interesting, right? Like, there are people, and I've been reading online, like, people's interpretations of what this is all about and everything. I'm like, these people are nuts, right? But, again, the magi, who's probably looking at the magi, and they're saying, like, Herod... Herod's like, hey, why don't you guys go down to Bethlehem and you guys go check it out? Okay, whatever. Like, you know, 
good on you. You have a good time on your trip, okay? But that's what we're talking about here. So what, whatever this could be, it could be, I mean, what we're going to see in the night sky, we haven't seen since 1226 tomorrow night. You could do it tonight. I mean, it's been, it's been actually up there for, they've been getting closer and closer and closer through November. All, actually, all summer, you've probably been noticed, if, if you've noticed these things, they're just getting closer and closer together. And, and then after tomorrow night, they're going to start to get further and further apart. So anyway, take, take a good look um, because they're going to disappear for a while because they're going to go behind the sun. All right, all right, all right. You guys with me? Like, I just feel like I totally went Chuck Missler on everybody on, in that little moment. But hang with me, okay. All right. Um, in any event, the astral phenomena appears. It also could be a supernatural occurrence, a star. It could be an angel. It could be an angel in the sky, and it lights up, and then they, it sets them on their journey. And then when they're, they're in Jerusalem, they're like, where do we go? Where do we go? And they're like, oh, well, you know, oh. And then they go, and they find whatever they're looking for. It could be supernatural as well. So there's lots of things it could be. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's unconventional. It's unorthodox. Why, why do I love this passage? Why do I love these magi? Why, why, is it, why is this passage bringing me joy? See, there's lots of things you can preach on at Christmas time. And I was like, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know if you guys knew this. And a little bit of self-care is you just got to do some things that bring you joy. Like you just got to find some stuff whether it's taco sauce or burritos or Christmas cookies or your grandkids, you just got to find something that brings you joy. Now, to me, I was telling Kelly, she's like, what are you preaching? I'm like, whatever I want to, because whatever is bringing me joy. So you guys are along for the ride on this one, but this is bringing me joy. It's, why do I love this passage? And let me just reflect a little bit on why at Christmas time this brings me such joy joy to kind of go down this rabbit trail and go down the hole and geek out a little bit on all of you. For one, the magi are unconventional and unorthodox. They're outsiders. They're unconventional and unorthodox. And I, I have to say, I did not grow up in the church. And once I did get into, once I did put my faith in Jesus and got into the church, there's always been, to be quite honest, there's always been a little sense of being an outsider. Like I, I didn't grow up like rolling under the pews during choir practice at when, you know, I didn't grow up uh, memorizing scripture. I didn't grow up with that. And so I've always felt a little bit outside. And these guys are total outsiders. And I, at the same time, I've always been attracted to the mystery of God. Have you guys ever thought about this, that God is not easily engaged? Like, there's tension. Whenever we talk about knowing God or who is God or what is God doing, there's always some kind of tension. God is not easily engaged or understood. And even today, even like when, when we, t I've even said these things like God is involved in this pandemic. Even when you say something like that or God is at work in this pandemic, I could just see some people's brains exploding like if God is good, why is this suffering? What do you mean that God is doing something in this? Like it brings up the issue of the problem of pain, the, the relationship of God to evil and there's so much in this and you you think about the mystery of who God is and the mystery of providence. And for me, there's, there's this issue, like it's, I've always been kind of attracted to the mystery 
of this whole thing. With God, there's power and majesty, but there's also hiddenness and subtlety. And the difficulty that stands between God and humanity is fascinating to me. Understanding God can be confounding. And yet, God is strangely accessible in our world. We can look up at the night sky and look at the the vastness of it and be amazed and be drawn to God strangely when he's so difficult to even understand. Or we can pick up a grandchild and we can have a sense of, of a love that wouldn't, we, we wonder, how did that ever come out of me? And you wonder, where is this coming from? And you realize that God is at work in our world, in our circumstances. As difficult as God is to understand, he is strangely accessible at the same time. And the Magi are just an example of men who are curious, who look up, and they find God at work, strangely accessible. And it brings me to the second thing, that not only, why do I like this? Why do I like the Magi? They're unconventional, and they're unorthodox. But even though they were unorthodox, they were looking. They were looking for God to work in their world. I think in some ways that we maybe as Orthodox, we fall asleep to. That we, we get comfortable in our homes, we get comfortable in our pews, we get comfortable in our churches, and we get comfortable with the day-to-day life, the very predictable patterns, and we read our Dave Ramsey, and we read you know, all the things that we can control our life, and everything's all explainable by good decisions and market forces. And we forget that God is at work in this world beyond our good decisions and beyond our mar- the market forces that say whether the economy is going well or not. And what I love about these guys is they're, they're outsiders, but they are looking. Every night they go out and they look at the stars and they ask God, what are you doing? It's a, it's a way that I'm like, here's the thing, for me, I'm more comfortable with the scribes in Jerusalem, right? Like, that's who I relate to. I have a PhD in New Testament. I've done a lot of studying, and I could tell over the Bible, and I can tell you, oh, well, this is here, and this is here, and they're quoting from, you know, Micah chapter 2, and, you know, I can, I can do all, I can stand up, and I can explain this, and I can barely explain, you know, about Jupiter and Saturn. But as much as you think about in Matthew 2, 4, when they assemble the chief priests and scribes and they inquire where is the Christ to be born, they're very sure. They're like, well, it's in Bethlehem. Of course it's in Bethlehem. And the scribes know. They comfortably know, but they love Jerusalem. They love their seats. They love their spots. They love being close to the king. They love all that stuff. Here's the difference between the Magi and the scribes and what I love about the Magi. When the Magi hear that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, you know what the Magi do? They journey. They go. They go. When they saw the star at its rising, what do they do? Well, it's time to pack up. From where? Like, you think about what did it take for these guys to go on this, like, three, four, five hundred mile journey? To go find, to go find what? To go find who? To go find where? Like, what are they doing? And here they pack up, and they're, they're like, well, it's in Bethlehem. They're like, well, okay, well, we got to get, we'll pack up, and we'll go to Bethlehem. You know what the scribes do? Nothing. The Magi are willing to journey. 
they pack their bags and set out not knowing where they are going. Does this sound like anyone else in Scripture? You think about Abraham? Abraham, the, 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 that God makes a covenant with Abraham, but, he, but he, first he says, Abraham, just go. Go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham says, okay. So he goes north for a few about a thousand miles, and then his father dies, and so he goes south for about another 500 miles. Well, I don't know why. What do you, uh, just stop when I show you the land, right? And Abraham, he finds the land, but it says in the book of Hebrews that he's looking for a city whose foundation and builder who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's looking for the city. You know what Abraham never finds? He never finds the city. What does Abraham live in his whole life? A house? No. He lives in a tent because he will not live in a city whose architect and builder is not God. But he sets out not knowing where he's going. These guys, they see something in the night sky and they're like, it's time to go on a journey. And then when they find out, he's at Bethlehem. Well, it's time to go on a journey. And I think this idea that while the scribes are comfortable with all their scrolls in Jerusalem, and I I think with the Magi, for me, something for me, those who are willing to go on a journey, I have a lot of respect for. I have a lot of respect for people who are willing to step out and go to a place and a people that they don't know what is going to happen. Abraham received a promise that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. He didn't see that by the time he died. Even his son Isaac only had a couple of sons, and they didn't like each other very much. And then, and then it's only third generation that you actually begin to see there's 12 sons of Israel. And we're still in the process that he doesn't see that. It's like it's generations. This promise is going to take generations. I was just on a phone call with a student this week who has felt a strong calling from God, a past student, and he was just, hey, Professor Hill, can we just talk? I just got to just to process some things. And he's felt a really strong calling from God, but some circumstances happened, and a good friend of his passed away who was kind of a patron that was helping to finance his seminary, and he was like, I've had this call, but I don't know how it's going to happen. And I was just sharing with him, look, I will pray with you, I will walk with you. The one thing about the calling of God is we have no idea about the timing or the end game of the whole thing. God just says, go and be faithful. And sometimes that might take a few days, sometimes that might take a few weeks, sometimes that may take a few years. Sometimes that calling might be, you might be beginning something that is going to take generations to see through. And for the Magi, They are guided by God the best that they are able, and they set out not knowing where they're going, what they're going to find, who they're going to find, but they go out of faith. The other thing they go out of, and this is another reason why I love the Magi, is that they go out with joy. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, like I said, Herod says, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. And by the way, Herod's a liar there. Herod's kind of crazy. But one of the things that happens, just in the ancient world, when these night sky phenomena happen, these astral phenomena happen, um, and this happens with Nero in, in Rome, that there's a comet, and he's told there's a comet that appears. And, um, and what happens when night sky phenomena happen? It means that either someone special is going to be born or someone important is going to die. That's typically how these things are understood. 
And so you know what Nero does when, when something like this comet appears? You know what he does? He says, well, someone important is going to die. It better not be me, so I'm just going to kill a bunch of these people. <laughs> Sorry, that's weird. That's horrible. But that's what Nero does. And that's why, that's why Herod, when this happens, the whole city's troubled. They're like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is Herod going to die? Is someone else going to be born? And Herod is like, well, if someone's going to die, it's not going to be me. I'll slaughter hundreds of people before it's me. And that's the way this works in the ancient world. But for the, for the Magi in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And then in verse 10, this very short verse, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, in Hebrew, when you want to say something intensify, you say a verb and a noun together. And so, like, um, uh, Hannah, when she can't, she, uh, this is in the Old Testament, and she's, we, she's mourning, it says that she, um, uh, she wept with tears. And it meant that she wept bitter. You'll see in translation, she wept bitterly. It's an intensifier. And here it says, they rejoice with joy. And it means, and you'll oftentimes see the, the, uh, the translation, they were overjoyed. But what it, what it literally says is, they rejoice with joy great exceedingly. So it's like it totally doubles down on, the, on, on this is joy, but it's great joy. It's joy, unspeakable joy, right? This is the idea. They rejoice. They're overjoyed. And I think for me, as we kind of bring this home, and I'll invite the worship team up in just a second, one of the things as we talked about our, our question today, what is bringing you joy this Christmas season? And I, I don't want you to, that's not just a throwaway question to get you involved in the service. Like, that's a real question. Because I got news for you, there's, there's a lot of things that will run our lives, a lot of fuel that we run on in our lives. Like, there's, there's a lot of fuel, a lot of things that make you do the things you do. Like, guilt will make you do things that you might not want to do. Fear will make you do things that you do not want to do, but it'll make you, it's like fuel that drives you. Anxiety is something that, it's, it's fuel, it'll drive you to things. I got news for you, joy is fuel. When the magi see the star, it is their joy that drives them onto their journey. And I, I would just say this, if we think that, that the fruit of joy is much sweeter than the fruit of anxiety or the fruit of fear or the fruit of guilt. All of those things will drive your engine. I got news. All of those things will get you out of bed. All of those things will run you in your life. But not all of those things will give you the same type of fruit. Some will give you bitter fruit, fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. Those will run you. But I got news for you. There is, there is a fuel that God has for us that will bring the fruit of salvation, and that is the, fruit, that is the fuel of joy. And the Magi knew it. I wish I could have seen them. I wish I could have seen what this looks like. Grown men giddy with excitement, with joy. Like that's, I, whatever that is, I want some of that this Christmas, 
right? In the middle of this pandemic, when you see someone with joy, you're, they will stand out. And these guys stood out. They were unorthodox. When God guided, they journeyed. They journeyed with joy. They were unorthodox, but when they found what they were looking for, you know what they did? They bowed down. They bowed down, they gave gifts. Man, the fruit of joy, the fruit of God's guidance, the fruit of finding what God had set them out to find. And Matthew makes the point, this isn't, you know, they ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? It's the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus is called the king of the Jews. There's only one other time when Jesus is called the king of the Jews in the gospel of Matthew, and that's at the cross. And there's a placard over his head, king of the Jews. And what's interesting is you've got outsiders that are asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews at the beginning of Matthew? And at the end of Matthew, you have Jesus hanging on a cross, king of the Jews, and we have one more unconventional, unorthodox confession of faith. And that's the Roman centurion, the man who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. He looks up after seeing the signs and seeing Jesus, and he says, surely this was the Son of God. Surely this was the King of the Jews. And in both the beginning and the end of Matthew, you have these unorthodox confessions of faith that pave the way for the final saying of Jesus, go into all the world, to all the nations, to all the unorthodox, to all the unconventional, and disciple them, teach them in my name, give the good news. And that's where we find ourselves today, sitting here, sitting at home, the unorthodox, the strange, the outsider being brought in by God. And so we come today thankful for the Magi. I'm thankful for the Magi today. They bring me great joy. I hope they did to you today. I hope that you find something that is a cause of great joy, exceedingly great joy this week. Let's pray that God would do that for us this week. Father, we ask as we enter into this Christmas week that there are so many things, but we are craving joy. It might be difficult right now to find those things, but we ask that you would unveil those things, that you would bring those things out of us, that there would be a great joy, an exceedingly great joy, that we would find ourselves this week running on the fuel of joy and that we would be experiencing the fruit of that. Father, we love you. We thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've sent your son to this earth and that you have sent the unorthodox and the unconventional to find him, and it has provided a way for us to come to you this morning. So we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.